What's happening, everybody? Welcome back to the Funky Brain Podcast. My name is Dennis. Well, our guest today is an inspiring high-level athlete, but he ran into some problems earlier on in his life. After paroling in prison in 2008, which I'll let him tell you about, he started living out his dream with his addiction behind him. And he's a former BMX elite pro and placed second in the 2016 World Championships in Colombia and in the Masters Pro class and coached another athlete to the Olympic Games in Rio in 2016. His story is full of redemption, which I love because we've all made mistakes in the past. And he's seen a lot of the highest highs and lowest lows. And he's a TEDx speaker. And his goal cast video that went viral in February um, has been viewed more than 6 million times. He's one of the most requested substance abuse speakers in the country, traveling over 200 days a year to share his message. Mr. Tony Hoffman, how are you doing today, sir? I'm well. Thanks for having me on the show, man. Yeah, I'm really excited during this tough time. How's 2020 going for you so far? I think it's like everybody else. You know, it's been a wild ride. Uh, I've, I've been blessed, though. You know, I've had a really good three years coming up to 2020. And so, I haven't had some stressors that maybe some people have. And so I've been able to reallocate my time um, to other projects and not so much on how I'm going to survive. And so I've been very blessed in that. So I can't say that it's been astronomically awful, but it has been a hit on the business front of things. Uh, Obviously, I'm not traveling and speaking. Schools are more focused on figuring out how they're going to apply curriculum, being virtual based, and they are having speakers. Conferences are deciding to just wait until the COVID thing is over before they have their conferences. And so it's kind of just left me with this big old black space of time. And so uh, I've been okay with it, uh, it's, uh, but it's not what I wanted for sure. Yeah, I think that's a lot of people. You know, I think a lot of people are struggling a lot more, but it's just a, it's a little different. We're all been like throwing a curveball and we're like, what do you do with the curveball? And for me, yep. I'm in the same boat as you. Well, for one, I was doing more speaking and I had to cancel a bunch of that. So I had to focus because nobody's going to speaking engagements. So yep. I focus more on my coaching. I do a lot of mm-hmm. life coach and also uh, I do a lot of these podcasts too, which I love. But, you know, yeah. we had to shift gears a little bit. And it, it's a great, um, you know, it's it's really indicative of life. You know, we do yeah. we always be shifting gears, always be ready for the next move. And I, I was taught in business we have to be zigging when everybody else is zagging. Yeah, yeah. So I recorded a podcast uh, right at the beginning of COVID uh, called Opportunity Gap. And basically I used the analogy of road cycling, like at the Tour de France level, um, there's breakaways that, that individuals will take and in between there is an opportunity gap for others to catch the leaders or go on their own breakaways from the pack and try and work towards the leaders. And that's exactly how I've seen this situation as an opportunity gap. I've started three, I've been focusing on the three books that I've been writing, focusing on my podcast, all these things that uh, allow me to come out ahead so to speak, not the way I saw myself coming out of 2020 and many others, uh, but it's an opportunity gap because most people, I would say 95% of people have found themselves eating more, sleeping more, exercising less, reading less, uh, and doing a lot of these, well, I'm just going to take this time off until things go back to normal, not realizing that it wasn't going to be 14 days to flatten the curve. It wasn't going to be 30 days to flatten the curve. We were now several, several, several months into this. And many of us have built self-loathing habits out of this time and not self-improving habits, not, you know, coming out of this feeling like, you know what, I really got a hold of my depression. I really got a hold of my diet. I really got a hold of uh, always wanting to be involved in fitness and never getting involved, but now I have this time, and so I got involved in fitness, and so they came out with a brand new part of themselves, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. Uh, I, I wouldn't say that I'm an A-plus in grading myself, but I have been focusing on my books and and working on some things that I wouldn't have been able to work on if I was traveling so much. Yeah, and that's awesome and inspired. It's good to hear, you know, when, because there are a lot of people that haven't pulled out of it and that are struggling and that have started getting depressed or eating or drinking or doing whatever to cope with the 
the pain and the sadness or the loss, the lot, you know, the jobs, the yeah, the financial burdens. Like you said, we we don't have the same struggles a lot of other people do, but we all have our own struggles. So that's, that's right. That's right. And there's only so many human emotions. We all experience the same emotions to some degree. Some of us experience more anxiety and depression just naturally, but we have to overcome those. Other people are, you know, kind of paralyzed or experience paralysis just from fear in itself, right? Just the fear of taking the first step. Um, and, and that's not necessarily been a hurdle for me, but my hurdles are different than somebody that may be struggling with that. And, and, and those are still, in my opinion, equal struggles. They just look differently based on each person because we're unique in who we are. Right. And like when you look at people that are struggling, you know, some of their struggles might be glaring. Like we might look at them and be like, wow, that's really like awful, you know? And yep. And to other people, they might have these struggles in the background that really, if you had take one of those people that had like these really awful glaring physical addiction, money, divorce, like really bad problems and look at this guy who's in depression and be like, he doesn't have any problems, but to him, they're real, you know? And yeah, they, yeah he's emotionally attached to those problems or her, he, she, you know, they're emotionally attached to those problems. And to them, they're, they're hurting really bad. Absolutely. 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 You never know what anybody, you never know what somebody else is going through. That's why we were saying, right? Like smile at everybody you walk by because you never, everybody's fighting some sort of battle. So that's right. Um, you know, like I said, an incredibly inspiring story from prison to the Olympics. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about your story? What I, what I try to say is, you know, I, I was a naturally gifted athlete starting when I was a young kid. It was a gift of mine. It was uh, not something I needed to develop much. Obviously, all athletes have to develop a skill set. Uh, for myself, that skill set came easily because of my natural ability. And yet, despite, you know, this natural ability to be one of the best athletes in my town, I still had a lot of internal struggles with who I was. Uh, you know, I have social anxiety, which might seem odd because I'm a speaker or I do these types of things, but these are controlled environments, right? And, you know, I've overcome some of those initial fears that I may have had through my own, you know, inner competitor that wants to be the best at things. Um, but in group settings where it's like a networking side of things or somebody's birthday or somebody's wedding or, you know, just a gathering, I struggle immensely in those environments. I'm not talkative. I'm, I'm very behind the scenes. Um, I, I just have trouble, you know, sparking conversation and, and small talk, right? It's just socializing. I've just never been good at socializing. You know, if you want to get to, you know, these traumas and things that we're experiencing in life and, you know, wisdom stuff, like I love that. I can eat that up, but not everybody's in, in a social environment is, that's not what they want to do, right? They don't want to get uh, to that level because they're just trying to smile and have a good time and and that's okay but that started when I was younger you know I couldn't make friends at school I struggled to be a part of friend groups that I was making friends with and but I desired to be the person that was life of the party I desired to be a part of the group but I didn't know how that fear was so par- paralyzing for me to just socialize and be myself that uh, I didn't. And when I didn't, I began to resent myself. I re- began to resent how I felt, how, how I was as a person. I wanted to be somebody else. You know, I just desired to be something different. So then I could be liked. So then I could be a part of something. And my sports gift was really a, a part of my, my resentment because I didn't ask to be good at sports, yet everybody knew who I was because of sports. Everybody, so to speak, wanted to be me because of my sports gift. And that was what I hated. You know, I played sports because I was good at them and I, I was a competitor. I've always just been an inner competitor, but I didn't want the responsibility that came with being one of the best, right? You have coaches that have expectations of you becoming a leader, have expectations of you um, being an example. And, uh, you know, I think I knew in myself that, or I felt in myself that I just kind of wanted to be normal and that I didn't want to be a leader. I don't find somebody else to take that job. Uh, and, and that was for myself, I believe there was a mechanism of shame that came with that, but there was also a mechanism of me denying what, uh, belonged to me. Right. I, I should have been a leader and I knew that I should have been a leader, but I didn't take the role that I knew belonged to me. And because of that, 
uh, there was a discontention that I felt within myself. And, you know, I had all these struggles, these suicidal thoughts, starting when I was 12 years old. A lot of it has to do with myself, me not wanting the sports gift, but I play sports because it kind of alleviates uh, a lot of these emotions that I don't like because when I'm playing sports, I don't feel anxious. I don't feel suicidal thoughts. I don't feel depression. I'm totally in the moment of competition and it would help me escape. But, you know, I, I feel like my life took a, a hard left or a hard right, whichever direction you want to call it, when I was 12 years old. And my main focus was my dad's time. I wanted my dad at my basketball games because I wanted to go to the NBA. That was my dream. I really needed my dad a part of that. Uh, but my dad was was not a part of my basketball games. He was busy working and couldn't get off of work. And I, I was incapable because I was a 12-year-old boy of understanding why my dad was at work and couldn't get off of work. So I decided on my own that my dad wasn't showing up to my basketball games because he didn't love me. My dad wasn't showing up to my basketball games because I wasn't good enough. I had the best Michael Jordan shoes. I had all the best equipment. <clears throat> my dad worked 14 hour days to make sure I had all these opportunities and things, but I didn't communicate to my dad and I didn't know how to communicate to my dad that his time was more valuable than the shoes. And so I just felt so alone in the world because my mom, she's not my validating figure. I don't need my mom to show up for me ever. Steven today is a 37 year old adult. I don't, I don't need my mom to show up for me, but I still need my dad to show up for me. It's so bizarre. And I truly believe that this is uh, a mechanism that we don't get to control. We are born with a certain connection to one of our parents. That one parent becomes our validating figure or our hero. And they have the ability to speak life to us and also take life from us. And we build our belief system based on what this hero or validating figure speaks to our soul. And so being that my dad was at work all the time, I think, you know, my soul felt lost and it felt confused because everybody else's parents showed up to these games. And yet my dad wasn't able to uh, get off the games or get off of work for these games. And so I created this belief system. I was unloved and I was not good enough. And the belief system that followed those experiences or those feelings that I was having as a result uh, of the emotional neglect that was completely unintentional, it's not my dad's fault, was that I can't, I won't, and I'll not be able. And I gave up. I just gave up. As a young teenager, I gave up. I gave up on my dreams. I gave up on effort. I, gave, I, be, I just became extremely apathetic. I was extremely defiant. I was searching for acceptance within, you know, the institution of school that I was in. Now it was no longer, uh, I didn't feel stable at home, so I had to find it at school, and then I couldn't find it at school, and my behavior shifted, obviously, and I was kicked out of seventh grade, but that's how I found the BMX bike. Seventh grade, I found the BMX bike. By the time I'm a senior in high school, I'm on the cover of the largest BMX racing magazine in the world. I'm the only amateur sponsored by Fox in the world. I'm the only amateur in the United States sponsored by Airwalk Shoes and Spy Sunglasses. I'm ranked number one in the country. I have accolades at 18 years old after just being on a bike for six years. And most people would have thought, you know, this guy's going to be successful. You don't have to worry about him. But, you know, I had all the mental health struggles that I was struggling with starting when I was 12. I may have been on the cover of a magazine, but I didn't feel like I belonged there. Because my belief system says I can't, I won't, and I'm not able. And despite all of the success, it was unable to, I was unable to override that core belief system that I built when I was 12 years old. It would take many years of focused attention on that belief system for me to start to override that belief system. And that old belief system still exists, but I have to do a continual work each day uh, the deep work, the emotional work, the soul work for me to be able to overcome that one day at a time and build up this new belief system that I've built to be my instinctual belief system, right? When things go wrong, my, my new belief system has to be so strong that it's instinctual for me to lean on that versus leaning on my old system that would throw in the towel and give up. So at 18 years old, I'm, I'm having some great success in BMX, yet I'm still struggling internally on the inside and I found myself using uh, drugs as a coping mechanism to deal with 
my social anxiety, to deal with my depression and suicidal thoughts. And really what opened the door for that was I uh, stopped racing my senior year in high school when I was offered a network administration job down in San Diego, California for a guy that was inventing wireless internet radios and was going to put these things outside these rich neighborhoods. And so I knew I was going to go get this six-figure job right out of high school, no college education. I don't need to ride my bike anymore. So I started going to parties and that's what kids were doing at parties. And me being the kid that doesn't know how to socialize in party settings, the way for me to socialize was to just try what everybody else was doing. And I found that the mind altering substances were uh, appeasing to my mental health struggles. Uh, Eventually I was introduced to Oxycontin, pharmaceutical painkiller, opioid medication. And that was really where everything just spiraled out of control because for the first time in my life, I had experienced absolute freedom from depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. I had energy. I could go to sleep. I wasn't worried about myself anymore. And uh, opioids offered me that. And it felt like, okay, well, I could just do this. You know, I, would, I won't become a drug addict. I won't become somebody that commits crimes because I just, I'm such a better person on this. This makes me feel so much better how could it go that direction? And then to top it off, the icing on the cake was it comes from a doctor. It can't be bad for you because it's a pharmaceutical medication, right? Like why would the doctors prescribe something that's going to kill 60,000, 80,000 Americans in a year? They wouldn't do that. No way. Why would the doctors prescribe a medication that creates an epidemic that's killed over 500,000 people in 10 years? Like they wouldn't do that. No way. I grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood. Like we believed that pharmaceutical medication was safe because it was developed by scientists and prescribed by doctors. Uh, little, little did I know at 18 years old when I began to use opioid medication that it was no different than the stuff that came from the cartel. It was just packaged different. It was in an orange bottle versus a clear wrapper with foil around it. It was the same thing as heroin. It was just in a different package. Within three years, I uh, commit a home invasion robbery for prescription medication. Uh, the biggest mistake I've made in my life was going inside somebody's house with a gun and robbing them at gunpoint for the prescription meds. Uh, I vowed that I would never rob anybody again. Uh, my co-defendants kept robbing people and ended up on the news. And it started an investigation around all our friends, you know, and, and, and long story short, you know, I was not sentenced to prison on that run. My skin color, the money my parents spent on the attorney obviously played a role in me not going to prison for such a heinous crime. And Within two years after me finishing that court case, I was completely homeless. You know, I told myself, I'm never going to use again. I don't want to go to prison for 10 years, uh, but it's just not that easy. Addiction's not a choice. The choice. The choice that a person has when it comes to addiction is to use the first time. To become addicted and controlled by a substance, whether it's alcohol, whether it's uh, cigarettes, whether it's vaping, whether it's marijuana, whether it's prescription pills or meth, coke, and some of these other heavy drugs, um, that part is not a choice. Scientifically, it's been proven that part is not a choice. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. His mom was a drug addict alcoholic. Her dad was an alcoholic. Uh, The addiction gene runs in our family. And for me, uh, drugs became a coping, coping mechanism that my brain couldn't turn off the craving for because it was so effective. And what I felt was so effective, right? It felt effective, but over it really wasn't. It was taking everything I loved from me and stripping me of it. And yet, despite that, I still couldn't let go of the craving uh, because of the part of my brain where the craving switch is controlled. It's not, it doesn't operate the same as a normal person's. And so I ended up homeless after two years. And so in 2006, I spent, you know, about six months on the street and eventually was arrested in a home that was up for rent and went to prison. And going to prison is where, you know, I decided to kind of rebuild my life and decide what I was going to do with it. You know, it took me losing everything to realize that I had everything. You know, I had to have nothing to realize that I had everything that I ever needed to to be successful, to create a life of peace and serenity, to create a life of success. And I don't care who it is. Everybody has that. We all have everything you need. Whether or not you want to see that, that's up to you, right? You know, I tell people I lived in a concrete box for 23 years of my life. You know, I had a spiritual experience the day before I was arrested on January 21st, 2007. When I had that spiritual experience, that concrete box turned into a glass box with a door in it. 
the room didn't change. It had always been glass. I changed. When my mind changed, the scenery changed. Then immediately I was able to see opportunity. I was, a, I, I was able to see that there was more than I, I believed existed at that time in my life, right? And so it was like, wait a minute, there's a door. I don't have to sit here, but the door doesn't just open for you when you see it, right? We all have an obligation to do certain types of work, to get in line with our true self, to live in a state of honesty in which we have this universal power that belongs to us because we are following our gifts. We're giving to others. We're built behind passion. We are in 100% unison, in sync with who we are. We're not hanging out with people that don't benefit us. We're not um, allowing ourselves to be a part of toxic environments. We're rising above the occasion. And when you can find yourself in that position, then doors open. And you don't have to get there. Uh, you don't have to be perfect for one of those doors to open, right? So for me, I'm in prison for the first time living in a literal concrete box now, but I'm experiencing life much deeper than my circumstance. I'm starting to experience life on a much richer level despite me being in a prison cell. And so because I'm able to see that there's a scenery outside of this now glass room with a doorway, I want to know how to get out of that doorway. And one of the first clues that was given to me on how I was going to work for the keys to open up phase one uh, uh, to get through that first glass door was this quote that was on the ceiling above me. When I sat down on my prison bed the first night, I looked up and I read this quote. It said, be careful what you think. Your thoughts become your words. Be careful what you say. Your words become your actions. Be careful what you do. Your actions become your habits. Be careful what you make a habit because your habits become your character and your character becomes your destiny. And I kept thinking about it. And it had started to make so much sense to me because one, my spiritual experience took me from being somebody that knew everything to somebody that knew nothing. And I think that that's extremely important for people to understand. If you truly believe you know everything, well, then you will learn nothing. You will learn nothing about the deeper things in life. You will always be controlled by your perspective of reality and not realize there's a much deeper perspective of reality if you're able to put your ego away. When I was able to put my ego away, it was when I saw the scenery. When I was able to put my ego away, I was able to see the clue that was above me. That quote had been there for I don't know how long. And many people, let me tell you something, many people had read that quote that was written in that prison wall. But how many of them saw that as a clue to change their life? Not many, because in California, the recidivism rate when I was in prison was 93%. But I saw that as a direction that the universe was trying to say, this is how you're going to get that door open. I'm going to give you the first clue on how you're supposed to change your life. And by the way, when I say you're supposed to change your life, my mom wasn't going to help me. My dad wasn't going to help me. My community wasn't going to help me. The guards weren't going to help me. It was my responsibility. I had to be accountable for my life, for my actions, for my outcomes, and I had to push forward from there. And that's what I did. And that rebuilding my life started with brushing my teeth, making my bed, organizing my stuff. These were things that I could not do. These were tasks that I could not complete in an everyday life. And for many that are listening, it's not something you can do either. You might be able to brush your teeth, but you don't really make your bed. You don't really clean up after yourself. You don't really have... Uh, an order on all of these really simple factions of your life, right? Uh, I became a person of the Christian faith, and I don't push that faith on anybody. But in uh, the large book for the Christian faith, it says, if you can be trusted with little, you'll be trusted with much. And I thought to myself, I must learn how to reshape my thinking, to reshape my speaking and my behavior which changes my habits, which changes my character. And in changing my character, I must be able to be a steward, a good steward, do great work over all of these little items over time. And so I set goals that I was going to get out of prison and race my bike professionally. I was going to go to the Olympics, start a nonprofit organization, and I was going to become a professional speaker, all by starting to learn how to brush my teeth every single day. And it seems wildly insane that the pathway to the Olympics from a prison cell was a toothbrush, but it was. And it wasn't about necessarily getting to the Olympics, dude. It was about getting out of that door, not the prison one, the one that was in my mind, 
right? I wanted to access the deeper levels of consciousness. I wanted to experience life void of biases, void of early childhood trauma, void of resentment, void of hatred, void of envy, jealousy, um, all of these ex- these emotions that we experience as a human that take us from the moment and they put us in a place where we can't see anything. And so I knew that I was going to be able to do that by continuing to focus on myself and what I needed to do for each day. And over time, I would be introduced to new clues, just like that quote. And they would point me in a direction and I would take that direction because the universe is for every person that's listening. It's for you and I, we're not supposed to lose. The game is fixed. Everybody's supposed to win. The only reason we don't win is because we choose to not fixate our mind on the spirit of truth, on the direction of truth. We fixate our mind on ego. We fixate our mind on biases. We fixate our mind on resentment. And those completely block us from seeing all of these opportunities that are going on around us. When I got out of prison, man, I was a completely different person. Had changed the major things that I needed to change about my life. I had built a spiritual uh, principle in which I lived my life towards that was my foundation for success. It was my foundation for peace, resilience, um, joy, serenity. And I raced my first professional BMX race five months after getting out of prison, took third place. That first year, I won five races at the lower pro, divi- pro division. I started speaking in 2010, one year after I was on my bicycle. Was invited to the Olympic Training Center one year after being back on my bicycle by the United States of America. Um, I blew my knee out in 2011, which ended my career, but I just decided, you know, this is happening for a reason. You know, there's a deeper reason to this. Instead of resenting God or the universe or using that as an opportunity to give up. I just said, you know what, this is a, there's a, this is an opportunity in itself. I just have to figure out what that opportunity is. So I started coaching BMX athletes, started my nonprofit organization six months after I had my knee surgery. And by the time 2016 came around, was one of the most sought after substance abuse speakers in the country. Raised over $120,000 a year with my nonprofit organization and went to the Olympics in 2016 with my female athlete, Brooke Crane, had coached uh, two national champions, three world champions, 25 athletes from Australia to Bolivia at any one time, Um, had really built a name for myself in in coaching athletes in BMX. And then obviously, uh, 2016 to now, I've become one of the biggest motivational speakers uh, in all of the markets in the United States. Obviously, I'm a niche speaker for substance abuse and mental health, um, but still putting in more time than uh, most of the speakers in the United States. And I couldn't be any more grateful. It's never been about me, man. This has been about um, giving back because I've learned that uh, for me to access deeper experiences in life, it has to be about, it it has to be more than me. You can only buy so many cars. You can only buy such a cool house. You can, you know, can only have so many pairs of shoes. And I love pairs of shoes, but those don't allow you to experience life at a deeper level. It's so much deeper than that. It's, it's not about ourselves. It's about others. And, and being able to, to give myself to others and, and coaching and speaking and, and my nonprofit is really what has enriched my life and kept me sober. That was a pretty badass story. I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's funny because I, I also had similar, like, all the way down to the bottom type of experience. And I was in over 20 drunken car accidents. And when I was in rehab, they're like, how many times did you drive drunk? And I thought maybe I did the calculations and I figured at least 3,000. And I'm not talking like I had an extra beer at happy hour. Like, I'm talking like close one eye to stay on the road drunk. And yet, I'm still here. And I used to struggle with like, why am I here? And you hear about some kid getting wiped out when they're walking across the street by a drunk driver. And I struggled with that for years and I've been sober a really long time. And what I've come to find out is like what you just said, our purpose, the reason I'm here is forgiving. It's forgiving back. You know, if you're struggling with what your purpose is, it's to give on any level. When you wake up in the morning and open your eyes, how can I be of service to somebody today? Sometimes it's like buying something big for them. And sometimes it's smiling at somebody who's frowning when you walk into a store because you never know what they're going through. We were just talking about you never know. Everybody we run into has some sort of struggle that to them is really huge. And it could be a depressing 
real thing. It could be grief. It could be a divorce. It could be like any type of uh, loss of a job, whatever it is. But, you know, we're not responsible. And another way you were, I was taking notes about a lot of what you were saying, because it was really powerful. And we're not responsible for everything that happens to us, but we are responsible for how we react to it. And if we can grow through it, we have to find a way through because nobody else is responsible for our happiness. I think we need to get to that place of pain where we're hurting enough to see things differently. I don't think it's everybody's experience. I think some people are like, wow, this sucks. I'm going to change some things. But I don't think that's the masses. I think the majority of the people, we have to hurt for a while. Yeah. Well, I think that emotional pain is subjective. You know, it's like physical pain. I had a knee surgery with no pain medication. Um, I had an NFL player that heard me speak about that, and he, was, he, he didn't believe me. He's like, I blew my knee out, and the pain meds weren't enough. I can't imagine how you were able to do it with no pain medication. My physical pain tolerance is higher. You know, so is my emotional pain tolerance. That's why I was stubborn and on the street. You know, I was willing to go to certain depths. Some people, all they got to do is have the threat of losing a job or their spouse. And it's enough emotional pain for them to say, that's it. Changing. I can't lose all of this. Right. What would, if that's rock bottom for them, then that's rock bottom for them. I'm stoked if that's your rock bottom (laughs) because it wasn't mine. I'm so stubborn. You know, I'm a jackass. I'll be at the street and I can turn this around. I got this, you know, I I can somehow figure this out. You know, when in reality, I should have said, dude, it's over. Like you got to change. But it didn't come until many months of being on the street. Um, So, you know, we all, we all experience and feel at such different capacities. You know, I think it's, it's just, it's still the same. It's just the threshold is different for each person. Yeah, I agree. Wow. That, you know, that's a really powerful statement. I've done a lot of work myself and with other people. I guess I never really put that into perspective, but that's really true. Some people have, well, you know, can handle things better than others or differently. Differently. And you know, the, and, and I get asked all the time, you know, cause I do a lot of medical conferences and I'm speaking uh, in front of doctors and nurses and therapists and social workers and, and community organizations and families that are a part of these community organizations that have lost children or loved ones. And I get asked all the time, do you believe in rock bottom? And I reframe it for them. Absolutely. But rock bottom is not sleeping on the street. Rock bottom. It doesn't have to be, but rock bottom is a personal experience in which a person reaches the threshold that they don't want to go past, Mm. that they can't go past. So yeah, it is real, but we have to take the narrative of rock bottom being jails institutions, death, homelessness, because that's not rock bottom for everybody. Just like, you know, I had a sports psychologist that worked with me and, uh, you know, he asked me what I wanted and I said, I want to win races. What kind of question is that? Who gets into racing and doesn't want to win races? And he said, actually about 10% of my athletes want to win. And I was like, what? That doesn't make sense. Like you're a professional sports psychologist. You work with high level athletes, elite athletes. You're telling me that only 10% want to win. He said, yeah, most are just happy enough being there. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, how's that possible? Like there are dudes that are okay with just being in the final eight. Like if I get to the final eight, that's cool. But I didn't go there to just be there. I went there to cross the finish line first. And it gave me such uh, an insight into rock bottom, right? Because success even is subjective. Some people don't even need to make the final and they're happy with semis, quarterfinals. They're happy almost making it to the playoffs. Man, we had a good run this year. That was awesome. There's other individuals that are like, we made the playoffs, that sucked. We needed to be in the finals. And if we were in the finals, it sucked if we didn't win. I I saw Isaiah Thomas. Uh, talking about the Clippers getting beat by the Denver Nuggets. And he said, you know what? He goes, if, if we just made it to the playoffs, I considered that an awful season. And if I wouldn't have won a championship before my, my career was over, I would have considered it a failure. That's not everybody thinks that way. No different than everybody's rock bottom is not pushing a shopping cart. We all have a different threshold 
of failure and success. Rock bottom is real. It's just we've always we've always put the tag of rock bottom as homeless, jail, prison, straitjacket, and a mental health institution, and so forth. And that's you know what I do is try and reframe it. Let me help you understand my perspective and my understanding of this and how this works. Yeah, and that's a great point. And I remember when I got sober, so I went to this meeting. Uh, it was a meeting like 15, 16 years ago. And the woman, it was a speaker meeting. So for those that don't know that there's sometimes you go to meetings and somebody is just the speaker and you listen to them talk. And it was this woman and she was sober for, you know, like 15 years at the time. And she was telling her story. And her story was that she drank two shooters of vodka every day. That was it. That was her story. So, you know, but to her, her life had become unmanageable. And as I was a like, result two, of two shooters, two shooters. Now to me, I was like, that's breakfast. I was like, that's yeah. not enough to make a drink. So I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend that level to me. That was like, you know, I did that when I was like 12 and then yeah. by the time I was her age, I was drinking a half a gallon of whiskey every day and snorting an eight ball and smoking cigarettes. And so, but could you imagine, could you imagine how much anxiety and stress she would have felt under your circumstances? Sure. Because just the two shooters had her feeling out of control. Yeah. Yeah. The, the craving for just two shooters and what it was doing to her day. She's probably a person that has uh, a, a lot of anxiety, maybe even naturally, maybe an OCD personality where everything has to be kind of in order. And those, you know, the thoughts of needing those shooters at a certain time of the day were taking her from her natural kind of state, homeostasis of being organized and so forth. And so imagine if she was under your regiment. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's a, it's just a great point that everybody's, everybody, we're all on different paths, you know, and everything affects everybody differently. It's not a one size fits all, but the no. one thing that is true is that we need to continue to grow emotionally, our body, mind, and spirit needs to, we need to be working on those all the time. And then one thing you were talking about when you were sharing in the beginning was like setting goals. I set this goal. When I get out, I want to ride a bike. I want to be a speaker. I want to start a nonprofit. And you, you hit all those things without establishing these goals, clearly defining them. They're really hard to get to. And when you have the drugs and the alcohol and these other distractions in the way, they're, they never get accomplished, right? That's right. I, I, I truly believe there's uh, s- seven pillars to, to a house of sobriety. Uh, the foundation is God or spirituality. It doesn't have to be Jesus Christ. It doesn't have to be Muhammad. It has, just has to be a spiritually founded program in which there's a frequent contact with something greater than yourself that becomes an instinctual contact for the good times, the bad times, and the indifferent times. The first pillar is built on honesty. The second pillar is built on willingness. The third pillar is built on um, giving. The fourth pillar is built on discipline. The fifth pillar is built on structure. The sixth pillar is built on routine. And the seventh pillar is built on self-improvement, support groups, NAAA, church, therapy, um, that pushes you to continue to uh, strive for a different perspective for a richer part of life, to be around people that are like-minded, to be around people that uh, require you to be more, require more of you as a person so you can be better. If you can master those seven pillars with the foundation of a spiritual life, sobriety at the roof will always be there. Your house will stand. Uh, if, if you can switch those, you know, support groups to self-improvement and you can switch um, the God component and you can make it a total corporate thing and it can just be faith, you know, faith and unity at the bottom. So if you want to be successful, this house works the same. If you want to be sober, this house works the same because it's just simple life truths, simple life truths. And if we can live those out daily, you know, I think the, the opportunity or the potential is exponentially infinite, so to speak. Yeah. It's just never ending. We, we don't, we, we almost, we can't even fathom what we're able to accomplish. We can't dream of what 10 years could look like from now if we built that house. That was powerful stuff, and I agree with you. The important piece to me, what you were talking about, well, one, yes, spirituality. You know, the foundation of, of all of our principles 
whatever principles you decide to live on, they need, they almost, they're all, all success is almost always grounded in some sort of spirituality, even if you don't think it is, you know, right. It's a faith. Yeah. Faith in something bigger than yourself. And it's funny when I was a kid, I used to, I grew up Catholic and we used to go to church every Sunday. And I used to say to my mom, how come we have to go to church every Sunday? Especially when football was on Sunday. And that was like, why would they, you know, combine those two? Makes sense. Yeah. Right. But what she said was, and she had this awareness and this was 40 years ago. And she goes, it's just nice to be something bigger than me. And that was 40 years ago. And that was my mom who I thought didn't know anything as I was growing up and knew everything. She knew that back then. Yeah. I didn't pick up on it for another like 25, 30 years after that. But I wish I had right. sooner and really, you know, dove into what that really means. But another important piece of what you said is the accountability. You know, I, I don't really do AA as much as I used to, but the one thing that they nailed, you know, they had the, the well, one is the fellowship. I think that that's huge. If I'm freshly, if I'm my life's falling apart, I'm hurting, I have nowhere to go. My intuition tells me to sit at home by myself and try to figure it out. And it hardly ever works that way. Absolutely right. And that's, I think, one of the, the accountability piece really falls a lot into honesty. How honest can you get with yourself? Mm, that's a are big you, piece, yeah. Are you willing to accept the truth that you may just be the problem, not somebody else or something else? You know, because what we do is when we experience ourselves in the mirror that way, we, we immediately respond with ego and go into defense mode. And if we don't respond with ego, we take what we see and we shame ourselves, right? A lot of times when we see the truth, we feel some kind of component of shame or guilt. And for those of us who have not built our belief system up to be, I can, I will, and I'm able, if you're still operating in a, I can't, I won't, I'll never be able when we experience shame and we experience guilt, it's a confirmation of our truth, right? It's a confirmation that we can't. It's a confirmation that we won't. It's a confirmation that we'll never be able. And we take that and we say, that's me. That person I'm looking at is always going to be worthless. That person I'm looking at is never going to be worth a, a, a healthy marriage, a healthy relationship, uh, a thriving career. Um, of peace and joy and all of these other things, you know. Uh, but when we have the ability to look at ourselves in an honest nature, we can experience shame and we can experience guilt, but we don't believe it. We use it as a motivating um, factor that says, I'm going to be better because I don't like to even experience shame. I don't like to experience guilt. So, what do I need to do in my behavior? to make sure that I don't experience these emotions. And the more we work towards that, the more we can reverse those shame and guilt experiences. And when we free ourselves from shame and guilt, we find ourselves more in the moment. We find ourselves in such a different place of power that we overcome situations and we push through roadblocks or we hop over fences of adversity with much greater ease because we have this confidence in ourselves that I don't have to live in that. Right? I don't have to be shamed of myself. I don't have to be living in guilt. You're going to make mistakes. I make mistakes. I'm not perfect. I just don't believe the feelings I have when I make a mistake as my ultimate truth that I must carry for the rest of my life. It's a truth I carry in the moment. And after that moment is through, I use it as motivation to change something so I don't have to feel that again. Yeah, that's badass stuff, man. So shame and guilt are two of the biggest killers. The shame and the guilt, what comes up, and you were like, you know, they're going to come up. And it's like, what do we do? That's when you're on the fence. Because a lot of people, they'll go eat cake, or they'll start drinking, or they'll start, because then you have to feel, right? Yeah. I don't like feeling. Even if I don't want to feel that way, and I want to get out, I don't know how to on my own. It's really hard mm -hmm. to figure it out on your own. That's where that yep. account comes back in but when you're like when I face it and I'm honest about myself and I'm open to seeing new ways of living and I'm willing to make some changes then changes happen but for most people I think most people they kind of go the easier way because it's yep. easier to live that way but it's really not it seems easier to go have a drink or take some Xanax or smoke some weed or do mm -hmm. something so I don't have to feel that way anymore 
And then that's where the problems are. That's the addiction. Yeah, absolutely. And that's when uh, whatever room you're in right now is the room you stay in for the rest of your life because you're never doing any kind of work to take you out of the realm that you're in and into the next level. Yeah. And I would say that I've probably tra- transferred rooms three times now since getting sober in 13 and a half years. I've uh, graduated three different rooms. And the one that I'm in now is probably the most complex um, because I'm learning to understand my childhood as it relates to my relationships that I have now with people, um, a lot deeper biases that I may hold, and trying to uh, remove those so, uh, so-called character defects. So I can graduate from this room that I'm in to the next one. And I'm excited for that because the level of peace and joy that I'm at in my life right now is kind of hard to fathom how it could get better, but I know it does. I'm not at the end of this, uh, of this journey, but when we, when we refuse to see ourselves and hold ourselves accountable and do that work, then we stay where we're at. And some of you may, may see that the walls aren't concrete. Maybe you see that there's windows and a door but you won't do the work to get out. You continue to deny yourself that opportunity. You continue to deny yourself the work, the, uh, the patience it requires, the, the day in and day out uh, willingness that it requires for you to graduate in the next level. And so you just stay where you're at. And oftentimes staying where you're at means you're always gonna be a victim. You're always gonna believe that other people have it better than you. You're always gonna believe that if you just had money, things would change. If you just had, if you just went to a different school, things would change. And in reality, none of that actually has anything to do with why you are where you are right now. That's right. It's all right here. Yeah. It's all right there. And that doesn't mean that some people don't have better opportunities. That doesn't mean that some people didn't get to go to better schools. That doesn't mean that what happened to you when you were a child um, wasn't right. It wasn't right. People, like you said, we're not responsible for what happens to us sometimes, but we are responsible for how we react to it. And, uh, you know, I truly, truly, you know, with my work, try to get people to see their keys available to you to get out of the room that you're in and experience life differently. But until you pick yourself up, And as the rooms would say, put your pants on one leg at a time, put your shoes on one shoe at a time, tie them both and put one foot in front of the other. Life is never going to change. Nobody's going to come and hand you the freedom that you want. That's why most people that win the lottery go broke because what they needed wasn't money. It was much greater than money. Those who are trusted with little will be trusted with much. If you can't handle the small tasks in your life, you could never handle winning the lottery. You don't just come into a million dollars. Most people think a million dollars is a lot of money. I look at a million dollars and say, man, I don't think that would last me 15 years. Not because I spend a lot, but because I realize it's not that much money. After you buy a house, you buy a car, maybe if you're in debt, you pay that off. You know, there's not much left. Taxes on it, there's not much left. You know, but when you come into it and you think, oh yeah, a million dollars is a lot, it's gone in two years. And then you're in a worse position than you were before because you feel the shame of having so much and throwing it away. Yeah, we need to be ready for those types of things. Well, this is awesome, man. I mean, we could talk forever or maybe we could do this again. Why don't we schedule another one sometime? Or I would love to be on your podcast too. Yeah, we can, uh, we can bring you on. Awesome. So yeah, we have to wrap it up, but I really appreciate it. Oh, so tell, let's tell real quick, like a one minute summary of uh, the free wheel project. It's a non-organization. We're actually closing it down this year because I'm moving and uh, my traveling for speaking became so demanding. Um, But I developed a nonprofit organization that was based on action sports, basically my gift. And we developed a after school program and summer camp. That was bef- uh, it was founded on academic improvement and behavioral modification, and it was completely based on the idea of empowerment as prevention, not scare tactics, not um, you're going to go to jail if you don't graduate school. It was all incentive based. It was incentive based and empowerment based. And so, if we felt that if we gave kids an experience in which they loved, we could then provide them the life skills that they needed to be successful. 
whether it was in school or work, wherever they wanted to be when they graduated school, they could learn the life skills required. Banking, understanding, balancing uh, finances, attitude, choices, giving, a lot of these things that are in the pillars uh, that I've talked about. And we were a huge success, huge success. Kids were camping out to be a part of our uh, summer camp because we were giving away $400 bicycles. And uh, we couldn't accept all the kids into our after-school program, which schools were just so blown away by because after-school programs, if you don't know, are not an easy attractment. They're not an easy attractor. Sports, easy. Band, easy. Getting kids into after-school that don't have to do with something that already is the school's promoting is very difficult. But we provided such a cool experience being that it was action sports. We couldn't take all the kids. And we were able to take kids with 0.7 GPAs, get them to 3.0s, 4.0s, simply by just empowering them and giving them an awesome experience, which then fueled an environment where they wanted to learn. Awesome, man. If somebody wants to get in touch with you or, uh, in any way, uh, how would they do that? Absolutely. They can find me on Instagram, Tony M. Hoffman. They can find me on Facebook, Tony Hoffman Speaking. They can find me on my website, TonyHoffmanSpeaking.com. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Um, I answer all the questions that come across my Instagram direct message box. So if you had a personal question, Instagram's the best route to take. Sometimes it takes me a while to get to people uh, because I get a lot of questions and stuff from people that follow me, but just send me a message. I'm happy to get back to you. I also have a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Google podcast app. You can search my name, Tony Hoffman, and it's called the one choice podcast. Awesome, man. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate you. And thanks for stopping by the Funky Brain Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. And everybody else, thanks for listening to the Funky Brain Podcast today. I hope you're having a beautiful day. And if not, do something about that. And I'll talk to you soon. Have a great day. So you can't think your way into a new way of acting. You have to act your way into a new way of thinking and being. Hi, I'm Dennis Berry, best-selling author, speaker, and life coach for addiction recovery. So many people are stuck in their addiction, whether it's like drugs or alcohol or food or shopping or sex or money, and they think they could just stop or try to figure it out on their own, but they don't change anything in their lives. Nothing changes if nothing changes. In order for change to happen, you have to change something. My clients will be like, oh, I'll stop tomorrow, or if this happens, then I stop, or someday I'll just give it up. And then they just sit around and think, 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 and hope for different or better results, but it doesn't happen. You have to take action. Action most people aren't willing to take. People don't become willing until they're in enough pain, me included. And unfortunately, they wait, and they wait and time passes by. Even if you are willing, you don't even know where to begin. And that's where I come in. In my best-selling book, Funky Wisdom, A Practical Guide to Life, I talk about the how approach. How do I get sober? How do I stop doing drugs? How do I become healthier? How do I have more successful relationships? How do I become more financially successful? And the answer is how. Honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. I have to honestly admit that there's a problem. I have to honestly admit that things aren't going well and there needs to be changes. And then once I do that, the door opens and I become open to seeing new ways of living. And then I become willing to make those changes. You can't solve a problem with the same mind that created it. That's why I'm here to help. You know, I've been working with clients for over 15 years and helping them get clean and sober and change their lives and achieve inner peace and success. If you or somebody you love is struggling and doesn't know where to begin and how to make those changes to get to where they need to be, give me a call. Not tomorrow or in a week from now when you're hungover and your life is falling apart. Call now. Start making that change today and you'll be glad that you did. I'm sending you love and good vibes. Have a great day today.